Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. We're going to come from John 17, which is in the New Testament. And again, I'm hoping the words come up on the screen. So let's begin. Jesus looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those you, whom you, have gave, you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. So that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me wherever I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Let's welcome Liam to the stage. Thank you. Good morning. How are you? Hey, fantastic. Um, It's great to be with you and uh, great to be continuing this series on the Lord's prayers. Um, Is this a bit echoey? Is it just me? It's just me. I just, I can't do anything about my voice, so I'll just keep talking. Um, We are looking at um, some of the prayers that Jesus prayed in the Gospels, trying to learn how he prayed and what he prayed for, and therefore how we can deepen our own prayer life and our own relationship with God. And today, as we've just heard read, we we are going to focus on one of the final prayers that Jesus prayed. He prayed this just before his arrest, his betrayal, um, and his crucifixion. And I think it's an important prayer because it tells us what really really mattered to Jesus in those crucial moments? What was it that was on his mind? What was the final prayer he wanted to pray? Um, What were the things that he wanted to leave as a legacy? And I think the theme really is unity. That seems to be the thing that Jesus prays for in this prayer more than anything else. And it's a unity that is focused on the person of God. So he starts by praying for himself and then praying for the disciples and then actually praying for anyone who follows him uh, right down to us today. And I want to focus on that theme of unity. Think, what was Jesus saying? How do we understand this difficult passage? And then what does it mean for us? How does it affect the way we pray and live? Just a heads up, we're going to do the hard work at the beginning, then some practical stuff, and then a joke at the end. I know Andy Tilsey likes to know when the jokes are coming. It's coming in about 30 minutes time, but there you go. It's worth waiting for, I promise. So Jesus starts by praying this. He lifts his eyes to heaven and he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify the Son so that your Son may glorify you. 
This prayer comes at a turning point in John's gospel. If you read John's gospel to this point, again and again and again, Jesus talks about this hour that is coming, referring to his death. And he keeps saying, the hour is not yet here. The hour is not yet here. Then chapter 12, he starts talking about the hour. He starts revealing that he means that he is going to die. He knows that is coming. He says, the hour is coming. Now, chapter 17, he says, Father, the hour is here. Jesus knows that this is the moment that all has been building to. And he says, the hour has come, glorify your son. Which is kind of strange language, really. When you think about something so gruesome as crucifixion, Jesus says, glorify your son. It seems to be that Jesus sees a significance to his death. He's not just dying in the same way that thousands of other criminals would. It seems to be a moment that is actually going to bring God glory. It is part of the mission of God. In fact, he says this, I've brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus sees his death and resurrection as being part of a massive story, a plan of God, the work that God has given him to do. And what I want to do is just quickly recap this story and show you how actually this prayer for unity runs right through the whole of Scripture. The story of the Bible begins actually not with you, not with me, but with the person of God. Jesus says in this prayer in John 17, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And actually this prayer introduces some mind-boggling ideas and a strange concept of the Trinity, which is a very difficult thing to get our heads around. As Jen has already said, we're going to be teaching a day on that in about two weeks' time. Uh, And my thinking there was basically, most of you won't come to that. So I get off the hook today. I don't have to explain the Trinity. I go, come back in two weeks' time, knowing most of you won't. Cunning, huh? But um, (laughs) it's a difficult idea. But if I can put it as simply as this, the idea of the Trinity is this. The Christian God exists as perfect, loving community. Three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A difficult idea. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are perfect unity. But they are also diverse. And so in God, you have this thing, diversity in, sorry, unity in diversity. Now bear with me, this bit's a little bit tough. In 1 John chapter 4, it describes God as saying God is love. As in, if you were to think of the eternal God, how would you define him in one word? God is love. Which raises a question. Because love always has an object. I don't simply love in some kind of abstract sense. We always love a thing or a person. And so if God has eternally been love, then what was he loving before there was anything or anyone to love? Before creation, there was no person, there was no thing that could be the object of his love. How could God be love? Well, Jesus answers that. He says, you loved me before the creation of the world. Before anything else existed, God the Father loved the Son and the Spirit. God has always existed as perfect, loving community, unity in diversity. But then we see the second phase of the mission, which is this, creation. God created everything, including mankind. 
In Genesis 1, God says, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then you get this beautiful poetic account of what that looked like. And it says this, at the pinnacle of his creation, God says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule. And then it lists all the areas where we were made to rule. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. What's going on here? I think this is a moment where the God who exists as perfect unity in diversity, perfect love, extends his love by creating us in his image. He says, God created, singular. And then when God starts talking, he says, let us make man in our image. And then he creates mankind, male and female, two diverse, different people made to be one. This is God extending his unity in diversity. And actually, this idea is unique to any religion in the world. It's unique to Christianity. In all other religions, life precedes love. By which I mean this. In all other religions, God existed by himself before there was anything else for him to love. And in fact, in most religions, God either created things in order to love him or in order that he had something to love. In Christianity, it's the opposite way around. Love precedes life. God didn't create us because he was lonely. God didn't create us because he needed someone to love him. God already existed as perfect love, unity in diversity. He created us as an overflow of that and actually made us to be the people who would keep the unity and diversity of this whole world. But if you know the story, very quickly it falls apart. And in Genesis chapter 3, we get what's known as the fall, where mankind decides, actually, I'm going God's way rather than his way. We break the unity. And actually, all relationships have suffered from that point on. The relationship between mankind and God, between man and fellow man, and between us and this world, all broken. And so now, arguably, from Genesis 3 onwards, the world is characterized not by the unity and diversity of the love of God, but by disunity. And I think you'll agree, if you look around this world, it is a very disunited place. There are so many broken relationships, so many different ideologies that war, that think very differently. Often there is so much prejudice and discrimination on the basis of race or gender or religion or ethnicity or whatever it happens to be. This is not the unified world God made out of his love. And actually, this idea of unity in diversity is something that all of us long for, but few of us know where to find. The philosopher Ravi Zacharias says that actually, the quest for unity in diversity is the biggest quest that philosophy has been on since day one. He says, think back to the Greek philosophers. They were trying to work out what made up the world, what held the world together. And they identified four elements. They're the symbols just up there, earth, wind, fire, and water. They said, these are the things that make up everything. But as they reflected on it, they thought, well, what we've got here is diversity, four things, but no unity. What's the thing that holds them together? And so they actually coined this word quintessence, the fifth essence, And they made the focus of their search to find the thing that brought unity in diversity. They didn't know what it was. The poets said it was the air that the gods breathed, but they couldn't find it. But the whole quest of philosophy from that day on is to find unity in diversity. In fact, the word university, the place of learning, it literally means unity in diversity. The quest of all our learning is to find unity in diversity. Every American coin testifies to this search that we have. 
On all American coins, there's this Latin phrase, e pluribus unum, which means out of the multiplicity comes one. We all long for unity and diversity. Ever since Genesis 3, it's been the elusive idea that we have strived for, that we have longed for, but been unable to find. Act 4. God, in his love, was not content to leave us in this disunited state. He stepped into the world. And he, the embodiment of perfect unity and diversity, at the cross took upon himself all the brokenness of this world. So there's this moment where the son cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's like he is torn apart so that we can be reunited. Colossians 1 puts it like this. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Through Jesus, the quest of all philosophy is found, unity in diversity. Through him, it is possible for boundaries to be torn down and the disunited to be reunited, which paves the way for the final act of the mission, restoration, when Jesus will come back and complete the unity, restoring all things. In Revelation chapter 21, one of my favorite chapters of the Bible, it describes that day and it describes it like a marriage. I don't think that's a mistake. It's the taking of two things and uniting them together as one. And we're told that when that happens, all the symptoms of disunity just get wiped away. There'll be no more tears, no more suffering, no more death, no more pain. Everything brought together again as it was meant to be. This is God's mission of uniting all things. It runs right the way through all of Scripture. And when Jesus says here, the hour has come, I've done what you've made me to do, I think he knows I stand at this point, point four. I stand at the turning point here. What I am about to do in my death and resurrection ascension is going to change all the disunity in the world. It's going to unite all things back the way they were meant to be. And all of us get caught up in this big story. So Jesus prays for the believers. He says, I pray that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. If you're anything like me at this point, you're like, hang on, Jesus, <laughs> that is confusing. Uh, I mean, his language is more mystical than I tend to use on a general... I don't often talk about me being in God and God being in me and us being in each other. It's just weird language. It's peculiar language. If I can put it as simply as possible, I think what Jesus is saying here is that there is a quality of love and relationship that is available to anyone who wants it, which you will not find anywhere else in the world. We get beckoned into the very love relationship that the Trinity has. Perfect unity in diversity is available through the death and resurrection of Jesus. These are challenging ideas, I know. You've stuck with me through the hardest part of the talk. Well done. These are challenging ideas, I know. It may be that you're here and you're exploring questions of faith and you came in thinking, I've got half a dozen and now you're leaving with a dozen. I'm sorry if that is the case. But if I can put it as simply as possible, I think what Jesus is saying is this. You are loved by love itself, you are loved with a greater intensity of love than you could ever imagine. You are loved. Jesus prays, and in his prayer, he says that you, the Father, loved me before the creation of the world. And I can kind of get that. 
if I can stretch my brain, I can just about get the idea that the father might love the son because, you know, Jesus is worth loving, right? But then Jesus prays this prayer, this radical prayer. He prays that the love you have for me may be in them. The love that the father has for the son may be in all people. You are loved with the same intensity of love that the father has for the son. That is mind-blowing. We are invited into an experience of the love and community of God, unity in diversity. Christianity is not first and foremost about believing particular facts. It's not even actually first and foremost about living a particular way, a code of conduct. Although, of course, belief and living right are, are really important. Actually, it is fundamentally about relationship. And you don't need to understand everything in this passage to be able to experience the love of God, which is great because I don't understand everything in this passage. All you need to do is to say, God, I want to know that love. I'm willing to turn to you and do whatever it takes to experience that love. And you find actually when you do that, that Jesus has done all it takes. He has made it possible to reunite the ununitable. The love of God is available. And if you would like to know more about that, if you would like us to pray for you today to experience something of the love of God, I'd be very happy to do that at the end of the service. We'll have a prayer team. We would love to pray with you. Jesus is praying that we would be drawn deeper into the love of God. So what does that mean for us? Very practically. How does that change the way we live? How does that change the way we pray? Well, I think we should honor Jesus' prayer. And if Jesus' prayer is for us to be united in love, I think we should also pray the very same prayer. I don't know when the last time was you thought to pray for the unity of the church. I, I admit it's not something I often think of. We have been sending out emails and blog posts um, throughout this series recommending different ways that people can pray. And I think the second week we sent one out, the week of prayer for Christian unity. And we gave some suggestions for how people can pray for Christian unity. And someone emailed me and said, you know what, I never thought to pray for that. Why have I never thought to pray for other Christians, just the people in my church? Actually, very often we just get on with our own thing and don't realize that Jesus prayed for all of us. I think we should honor his prayer by saying, praying the same thing. I can't remember the last time before recently that I prayed, Lord, make us one as you are one. But as we reflect on the unity and diversity in the person of God, that should lead us to long for the same thing in the church. And one of the things that strikes me about this prayer is that in some sense it's kind of unanswered, isn't it? If you look around the world right now, I'm not sure you could say, yes, the church feels very much one as God is one. <laughs> At last count, and I don't know who counts these things, by the way, it certainly wasn't me, but last count, they estimate that there are 34,000 different distinct denominations in the world. Not quite one as God is one. That would be easier to count. <laughs> I could do that. 34,000. Now, actually, in one sense, I don't think that's a problem. I think it's okay to have denominations that reflect different styles and emphases and passions because uh, actually God doesn't call us to unity and homogeneity. He calls us to universe, uh, unity and diversity. I think diversity is okay. Diversity is good. And it doesn't need to tear apart unity. If there were only one church in London, I don't think that would be a good thing. Like, firstly, it would probably mean I'd be out of a job. <laughs> I can't imagine I'd be chosen to preach to the one church in London. Um, but more importantly, I think it would be bad for London. Uh, because London is a diverse place. It's a very 
diverse place. There are people who think very differently. We all see the world very differently. We express things differently. I mean, it's ethnically diverse. People literally can't speak the same language. It's intellectually diverse. People think at different levels. It's aesthetically diverse. We express or we learn different ways. We need a diverse church. We would not serve you well if we were the only church in this city. Actually, I think diversity is good. And I don't think that every church or every denomination needs to look the same or practice things the same way or dress the same or whatever. Actually, I think it's good that there is difference. We don't need to partner in every single event together in order to show that we're united. I think unity is deeper than that. And I think diversity is a good thing. Actually, it's just part of family, isn't it? You know, think of any family. In any family, siblings may be very different. You know, you have the, the intelligent one, the funny one, the clever one, the successful one. And you know, my family, that's not a good example because I'm all those things. <laughs> In your family, you may have the intelligent one, the attractive one, and then you, Matt. But, but you're still one family, right? We are still one family. In a room like this, we'll be hugely diverse. There'll be people that are like, I'm so passionate about this. Others like, oh, I never even thought about it. I'm passionate about this. And just because we are different doesn't mean we're not one. We're one family. We bring things that are different to the table. I think that's the way it's meant to be. Unity in diversity. But too often we can end up emphasizing the diversity over the unity. You look through church history and there are bloody examples of that. Even when there's not overt disunity though, I think sometimes there's a subtle disunity going on in the heart. Competitiveness or suspicion of motives that we have towards others maybe even others within our same denomination or church. I think that's what Jesus' prayer is trying to root out here. Pete Gregg, who leads the 24-7 prayer movement, he's spoken at Christ Church. He says this, Christ's great unanswered prayer is for Christian unity, and if our hearts are to echo his heart cry, we must learn to pray together and love one another, not just notionally from afar, but in practical relational ways. I think he's right. So here are two ways that we can honor Jesus' prayer. The first thing is to pray the same prayer, pray for unity. You may want to do this at a global level. You may want to do this at a national level, a local level. You may want to check out the post that we put on the website that gives some practical ideas for how you can pray for unity. Here's something that I've been trying, and I'm partway through trying it today. Uh, I realized that I don't even notice the diversity of the church. I'm so focused on what I'm trying to do here. But when I travel on a Sunday, this is my route. Can I have the next slide? This is my route between four services that I preach on on a Sunday. Actually, you probably can't see this, but when I took the screenshot, I looked at it this morning, and I realized I left walking directions on, and it suggests I walk for four hours and 40 minutes every Sunday, which clearly I don't do. Every... Hey, come on, I got a heart. This is my route. And on this route, I walk past countless churches. Like, I tried to count them during the week. I literally couldn't. On the journey today, I thought I knew how many I would pass by between my home and the first service. I found loads that I didn't even know existed. When I come out of the bottom of my road, there's an Anglican church. I then turn around the corner and go up the hill. There's a Methodist church and then a Baptist church. And that Baptist church has a Brazilian service that meets in the evening. There's then a, a Reformed church on the other side of the road that has, I think, a Korean service in the evening. Go around the corner, there's a Catholic church and then a Pentecostal church and probably a whole load of churches I don't even recognize because like us, they don't meet in traditional church buildings. I go past so many churches. We drive towards Stockwell. We go past Catholic churches, tons of Anglican churches, Baptist churches, um, all sorts of churches. We get to Stockwell. We meet in a school. I then get in a car from there and we drive to the Mermaid. I go past countless different churches. Uh, it's so many that I hadn't spotted. Today I was looking out the window going, another one, another one, another one. So many churches, very different styles. When I finish here, I will walk to the West End. I'll go up to St. Paul's Cathedral. I'll walk past there. I'll walk past St. Bride's, St. Dunstan's, the 
Temple Church, a whole load of other churches. I'll get to the West End. We'll meet in a Swiss Reformed church, very different style to ours, but they let us use their building. It's a beautiful place to have a service. When we're done there, I'll walk past the Chinese church. I'll say hi to them in Chinese. I, I probably won't. I'll go past Hillsong, massive church, meets in a theatre. I'll get in Tottenham Court Road Station. I'll go under however many churches. I have no idea. At that point, I'm not going to see them anymore. I'll get out east. I'll get out of Bethnal Green. I'll preach in a high Anglican church that allow us to use the building. Across a day, I will have seen, I don't know how many churches, hugely diverse. Some of them way bigger than us, some of them way smaller than us. Some of them very formal, some of them very relaxed. Some of them speak in English, some of them in languages I don't know. Some of them, to be honest, I would struggle to be part of. It wouldn't fit with my style. But we're one. We're family. We're unity and diversity. And what I'm trying to do today and we'll see how it goes. I'm doing all right so far. Is every time I spot a church, I'm, I'm just taking a moment to pray for them. I did it in the car driving up. My wife was driving and I was looking out the window and she'd be talking to me. I'd be like, shh, praying. <laughs> Which I do often in my marriage. <laughs> Even when I'm not praying. <laughs> That's a joke. Um, I'll be offered marriage counseling very soon. No, I, I was like, come on, let's, let's pray. There's another one. And I realized a whole load of churches I don't even know. And I would see the banners outside. I'd be like, wow, that church is a food bank that blesses my area. I didn't know that. Let's pray. Pray, Lord, would you bless that food bank? I did it in the taxi on the way over. I didn't talk to the taxi driver about it. That would have freaked him out a bit. Praying for churches, I don't know. I, to be honest, I will do this through the day. I don't know if it'll make the slightest bit of difference to any of the churches, <laughs> but I'm sure it will make a difference to me. In fact, it already is. Because as I pray for other churches, I realize, man, there's a reason why God loves diversity. Because we could not reach all these people that these churches are reaching. I thank God for that. And as I pray for other churches, you know what it does? It gets rid of any kind of wrong competitiveness that I have. I do sometimes look at other churches and feel jealous when I see them growing in ways that we're not growing, or I think, oh, if we had a building like that, or if we had that kind of opportunity, and I can feel jealous, I can feel competitive. I feel threatened sometimes when someone's on our turf, as if it's our turf anyway. You know, this weird senses of competitiveness we have. Actually, when we start praying, prayers are blessing for other churches. It roots that out. I think that's a step towards being one as God is one, celebrating the diversity and the unity in diversity. You may want to try this this week. Maybe on your commute, take out the headphones. Look out for churches you've never spotted before. When you pass them by, pray a prayer of blessing for them. Lord, would you bless this church? Would you use it to reach people we would never reach? I pray for their leaders. I pray for their community groups. I pray for their social action. Would you bless them? Give them all the resources they need. Give them the building they need. In fact, any prayer you would like prayed for this church, pray it for another church this week. You may want to look wherever you live. Um, get Google Maps. Pin all the churches around you. Pray for them. Find out what they're doing. Pray that God will bless them and use them to bless your community in ways that we won't, in ways that we can't. That's a step towards praying for unity. Pray for the unity of this church. We won't have time to go into this right now, but we meet in four places across the city. Pray for this church. Pray that we would be one, even as we're spread across the city. There's a group in Sutton this week trying to build community and meet people who would never come to our church. Pray for them. Pray that they have great success this week. Let's pray Jesus' prayer for our city. It will do us good if it doesn't even do them any good, and I'm sure it will do them good as well. Let's pray for unity. Secondly and quickly, we can work for unity. In Ephesians, Paul writes these words, really challenging words. He says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Notice what it says there. Paul doesn't say, work hard to make 
unity. He doesn't say work hard to create unity. What does he say? He says make a work hard to keep the unity of the Spirit. The unity that the Spirit is making. The unity that Spirit has made. For you were called, past tense, when you were called to one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God who is one. The whole mission of God is about uniting everything in heaven and on earth. The Spirit makes unity. You know, if you become a follower of Jesus, you get brothers and sisters you don't get to choose. (laughs) You get beckoned into a family whether you like it or not. And our challenge is not to create the unity, it's to keep the unity that God is making. And the way that we do that, according to Paul here, is actually to do with our attitudes, he says. It's not about partnering together in every event, about sharing a meal together every X number of months. It's about our attitudes. That's what he stresses here. He says, be completely humble. I think humility has to do with a willingness to accept that we don't always get it right, that there are people more skilled than us who see things differently to us and they may be the right ones. I think humility has to do with an just a willingness to change and to say, hey, we made a mistake there. We want to learn from you. He talks about gentleness. You know, when we do think about our differences and we need to talk about our differences and there are big differences we need to talk about, when we do it, do we do it gently or do we do it in an accusational sort of way? Too often my words come out like attacks. I accuse, you're wrong, you're doing this because of X, Y, and Z. Actually, he says, be gentle. That's the way we keep the unity of the Spirit. Be kind to one another. He talks about patience. Patience recognizes that change takes time. Healing of relationships takes time. I'm so impatient. I'm like, you're wrong, you need to change, why haven't you done it yet? (laughs) That doesn't keep the unity of the Spirit. Patience means we bear with one another. We give them the time and the space they need, just as they hopefully will do the same for us. We bear with one another in love. Love should be the thing that permeates all our discussion, all our prayer for one another, all our working together. Love. We don't think unhelpful thoughts about others. We don't think critical thoughts about others. We strive hard to think the best of others, to long for the best in those who are different to us. This is how we build unity, to maintain the family relationship God has called us into. I don't get this right all the time. In fact, just more and more I think and pray about this, I realize how often I don't get it right. How often there are things in my heart that actually are forces for disunity rather than unity. I admit that to you. I get it wrong. There are times when I will just think the worst of someone. I'll be suspicious of their motives or I'll just make a sweeping generalization about a denomination or whatever it happens to be that is just different to us. I'll think that I've got it right and they've got it wrong and I won't have the humility to admit that maybe I'm not the one who's seeing it right. I'm not always gracious. I don't always extend people the grace and the patience and the time that they deserve. I hold unhelpful thoughts in my heart at times towards other people and other churches, maybe even sometimes within our own church. There are things in my heart that I need to get right if I'm going to be a force for unity. Is it the same for you? I don't want to be the reason why Jesus' prayer stays unanswered. I don't want our church to be the reason why Jesus' prayer stays unanswered. I want to be a force for unity. I want this church to be a beacon for unity in this city, in this nation, in this world. So how are we doing at that? 
Are there areas where we know God is prompting us? Hey, come on, be one as we are one. Are there maybe areas where you might need to ask for forgiveness? Maybe from God, maybe from others. Are there areas where maybe you need to extend forgiveness to someone else? Someone who's hurt you? The Pope, uh, Pope John Paul in the year 2000, he preached a sermon on unity. I was reading it uh, just the other week. And there's a prayer he offers there which is just brilliant and challenging. He prays this. We humbly ask for forgiveness for the part that each of us with his or her behaviours has played in the evils that contribute to disrupting the face of the church. At the same time as we confess our sins, let us forgive the faults committed by others towards us. It sounds awfully like another prayer that Jesus taught that we heard of last week, right? Forgive us our sins as we forgive others. How are we allowing the Spirit to bring unity and to use us for unity? If you know in your heart, and you may be completely fine, I may be the only one with the issue here. If you know in your heart there are things that are stopping the unity of the church, attitudes that are unhelpful in you, then get prayer today. Talk to someone about it. Pray about it. Maybe extend a hand of unity to someone this week. Let's work hard to make sure we are not the reason Jesus' prayer remains unanswered because the stakes are higher than we might think. Because Jesus doesn't pray this prayer just so that there are groups of people who get on with one another across the city and across the world. Actually, the unity and diversity of the church is one of the key ways that God is reuniting all things to him. Have you ever wondered why the world seems sometimes reluctant to listen to the Christian message? I think it's because often they look at the church and they see disunity and think, is that really what the message produces? Not interested. Jesus prays that we may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Just as the church's disunity is a real off-putting thing to many, so Unity and diversity, when found in the church, can be an incredible picture of the power of the gospel. And Jesus' prayer is that people would look at us and see a quality of love and unity and diversity here that cannot be found anywhere else. The quest of all philosophy, the thing every American coin longs for. It's see it in the church and go, how is that possible unless God is really here? Unless God is really at work uniting the ununitable. Jesus wants people to be able to look at us and get an experience of his love and be drawn into relationship with him. He prays this, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you love me before the creation of the world. The whole passage actually is framed by this idea of glory. If we had time, I could show you the way the theme of glory runs right through John's gospel. It's a key thing for Jesus. He starts out by saying, the hour has come, glorify me. Then he says, I pray that these disciples would see my glory so the whole world may actually see my glory. And in one sense, he's, he's thinking of the future here. In one sense, Jesus is saying, I am now going to die and rise again and ascend into heaven. Then one day I'll come back and make everything new. And my longing is that all these people will be there at the new creation and see me in all my glory. But actually, I don't think it's just future looking. And the reason I think that is because John's gospel opens by saying, the word Jesus became flesh and we have seen his glory, past tense. There is a sense in which we right now get to see the glory of God that we will one day see in full when he reunites everything. And Jesus prays that we would see it. And that word see, it's a Greek word, it's theoreo, and it means two things. It has two meanings. The first level of meaning is this. It means to give sustained attention to something, really to observe it. 
but it also means to enjoy being in the presence of something. So Jesus prays at the end of this great prayer of unity that we would give sustained attention to and enjoy being in the presence of his glory. And he says when we do that, others will take note and be drawn into him. Let me try and illustrate this just as we come into close. Uh, I don't know a lot about art. <laughs> uh, I mean, theatre, the music, those sorts of things, fine. But paintings, I, you know, I, sometimes I look at things and I either like them or don't like them. That's about as deep as my knowledge goes, to be honest. And so if I go to an art gallery, I feel a bit out of place. And I have to dress trendier than normal so I can feel like I fit in and uh, carry a moleskin because that's what people do in art galleries. Do you, you know, that's a journal, not I don't skin a mole and carry it. <laughs> Not Damien Hurst. Uh, oh, I do know more about art than I thought. Now, I, so I, I go to um, art galleries and I, I find myself out of place sometimes. Maybe you feel like that coming into a church. And sometimes I go around the galleries. And a couple of years ago, I was at the Tate Modern and I was uh, just going around and observing things from afar. And I kind of see the painting. And I'm like, hmm. <laughs> Pretend to write something down as if I'm taking notes or whatever. But I don't really know. I like it or I don't. And I move on. I kind of glide around galleries as I'm sort of just looking at things and observing from a distance. And I got to this one point and there was a bench in the gallery. And uh, there was this whole group of people who looked like they'd come together and they were sitting together and they were looking at this painting together. I was like, wow, okay, that's a bit weird. I never really understood why they had benches because surely everyone just glides and <laughs> doesn't actually need to stop and look at paintings. But hey, this group are looking at the painting. I'll go and look at the painting. So I stand in there behind them looking at this painting and like, wow, it's blue and gold and there's some rectangles and <laughs> five out of ten that was I, I didn't know so I just moved on I was like that's it I'm done I kind of went round actually the whole thing was in a loop so I came back round about five minutes later and I found the same group of people sitting on the same bench looking at the same painting I was like man these guys are a little bit odd <laughs> why is it that they are still taking so long to get that what I got in two seconds so I went over and I thought maybe I've missed something so I stood behind them and I looked at the painting and I was like Still blue and gold and, you know, five out of ten. I didn't get it. But there was something about the way these people were looking at the painting that I found weird and worth my attention. So I looked at them. And as I looked at this group, it was like they were looking at this painting with an intensity that I just couldn't quite fathom. It's like their eyes were just pouring every brushstroke, thinking, come on, I want to get every ounce of meaning out of this painting. And there was a peace that sort of rested on them. It was... They were theoreoing that painting. They were giving it every ounce of their attention. They were enjoying being in its presence. And there was a peace on them that was so attractive. Jesus calls us to do that with him. We theoreo his glory. We give it all our attention. We drink it in. We stop in groups. We just enjoy it. We sit silent in his presence. We enjoy his presence. And Jesus says that when we do that, Others will be drawn to him. Here's the weird thing. I stood behind this group and I was looking at them and looking at the painting and a sort of weird jealousy kind of grew in my heart. Like, why can't I see what these people see? What is it that's so captivating, so beautiful with these people that they would sit in a gallery and look at this thing? I was jealous for the experience these people were having and I looked again at the painting with more intensity than I ever had done before. I would put it to you that when we dwell together in unity, and love, with our eyes transfixed on Jesus' glory, enjoying his presence, exhibiting here a unity and diversity that you cannot find anywhere else. People will see that and give Jesus a second look that they never would have done before. That's Jesus' prayer, that we would be one as he is one, and that in looking at us, others would lift their eyes and look at him. 
and maybe come to experience his love. That's my prayer for us. Maybe the band can come back up. So how are we doing at this? How are you doing at this? How are you doing at being the answer to Jesus' prayer? Are there things in your heart that you know, actually, I need to get rid of that if I'm going to be one as God is one? If so, we'd love to have an opportunity to pray with you, talk with you today. This is important. It's the way that God is drawing people to himself. In a moment, we're going to sing a song about the love of God and about this invitation that he offers us. And we're going to celebrate about the power of God's love to change us. And during this moment, you may want to take it as a chance to say, Holy Spirit, continue your unifying work in me and in this group of people, that you will be glorified throughout all the earth. Can I pray for us? Why don't we stand? I'm just going to pray a really simple prayer and ask the Holy Spirit, who is the one who brings unity, to do that with us right now. And you may want to close your eyes, but my suggestion is this. As you close your eyes, don't just suddenly think, hang on, this is just about me and God. It's about us and God. He's drawing us into relationship with him. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, bringer of unity, Would you come upon us right now? God of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that perfect embodiment of unity in diversity, I want to pray that you would make us increasingly one as you are one. Would you unite us? And would you use us as a force for unity in this city, in this nation, and in this world? Would you forgive us for the attitudes that some of us have held that have fostered disunity rather than unity? And would you empower us to forgive others who have hurt us? And as we theoreo you, as we fix our eyes on you and enjoy your presence, would you tie us tighter together that others would see a quality of love here that everyone is yearning for but no one can offer except you? And would people see a love and a unity here That is so attractive that they lift their eyes and they give you a second glance. And would many be drawn into this relationship that you have to offer because of the striving for unity in this church? Holy Spirit, just rest on us. As we sing, as we celebrate your love, may that experience of your love just come alive in our hearts in a way that deepens our trust of you and our love for one another. Would you use us for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.